Amen. If you uh, have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to, to Genesis chapter 11. If you're a guest of ours, we are studying Genesis 1 through 11 together on Sunday morning, and we've made it to uh, the first part of chapter 11. We'll finish this series next week. We're going to look at the latter half of verse uh, of chapter 11 and the first portion of chapter 12. This morning, we're going to take a look at chapters 10, chapter 10, and then the first part of 11, but we're not going to read all of 10, and I'll kind of, you'll understand why in just a minute. And so we've been through creation. God has created the heavens and the earth. God has created all the plants and the animals. He's created all of uh, humanity. He's uh, given us this great, beautiful, wonderful place to live. He gave us the one prohibition to not eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, we rebelled and disobeyed and sinned against him in that. And then we see just this back and forth of, of man's sin and wickedness and God's grace and man's sin and wickedness and God's grace and so forth. And then we come to chapter 10, which follows Noah and the ark and his family being rescued from God's judgment, from God's wrath against our wickedness, from them leaving the ark. And chapter 10 is just a record of God repopulating the earth and, and the scattering of the descendants of Noah. And we're going to look a little bit at that um, uh, this morning, just to, to point it out to you and kind of pique your interest a little bit. But our primary focus is going to be chapter 11, verses 1 uh, through 9. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, the passage will be on the screen in front of you, or you can use the, the Pew Bible there in front of you. On page 10, you'll find Genesis chapter 11. So whatever you're most comfortable with. Uh, but let's read this passage together, and then we'll kind of dive into it a little bit and try to understand what exactly is going on here and the lessons you and I can learn from it. So God's Word says this, The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east or migrated eastward, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we would be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them through, uh, throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity you've given us to study your word and to gather again today, Lord. And I just ask and pray that you give every one of us eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, that as we study your word, uh, that you would just speak clearly to us. Have your way, Lord, in each of our lives, each of our hearts and our minds. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen and amen. So, wh wh what do we have here? A at Babel or Babylon, 
for the first time, we see humanity introducing this idea of corporate idolatry. We see the roots of pagan idolatry right here in verses 1 through 9. The goal of man in this context was to build our own kingdom, a kingdom of our own making, of our own doing, rather than seeking and building the kingdom of God. In this text, we see that man institutes this practice of self-worship self-idolatry or the idolatry of anything other uh, than the worship of the Lord. Now, interestingly, the account of chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, occurs prior to most of chapter 10. And these verses in chapter 11 kind of give us the reason behind the scattering of Noah's descendants that we see in chapter 10. In verse 2, here's what we read there just a moment ago. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. So as Noah and his sons and his descendants uh, began to migrate from Mount Ararat, where the ark landed, uh, they found their way to this land called Shinar, and then they began to populate that area. Now, we see this in chapter 10 in, in, in verse 8 and then again in verse 10. Listen to what we read here. Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. His kingdom, verse 10, started with Babylon, and then we see some additional cities, additional kingdoms that he built. Going back to chapter 11 and verse 8, here's what we read. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. And so chapter 10 details for us the scattering of these people as a result of what was going on there in the city called Babylon in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Now, let me just give you a little bit of historical context here, just to kind of pique your interest, kind of get an understanding of what in the world is going on here. Chapter 10 details for us how Noah's descendants began to scatter around the earth. In verses 2 through uh, 5, we see how his son uh, Japheth and his descendants began to scatter. Now, here's something very interesting about this. Uh, Japheth's family uh, became known as the Indo-European peoples. Now, I'm not going to get into too much detail, but this is kind of fascinating. It, 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 linguists have studied the roots, the origins of the languages of the world, and, and, and they've determined that many of the languages in, in what you and I call Europe, Western Europe, and Eastern Europe came from these people. For example, um, here's what we know, that the people, the modern nations that comprise the migration of Japheth's descendants include these nations. Listen to this. India, Afghanistan, Iran, Armenia, the Balkans, Bulgaria, uh, the people of the former Yugoslavia, Russia, the Czech Republic, Poland, Germany, Greece, Italy, France, Spain, Portugal, Switzerland, Romania, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, Scandinavia, the Netherlands, Belgium, and England. All of those people originated from Noah's son, Japheth. That's fascinating. And then we read in chapter 10, beginning in verse 6, we read about Ham's family and their migration. 
Ham's family migrated to Africa, Arabia, Mesopotamia, and then further east into what you and I call uh, the Orient today. Uh, Ham's descendants would become the Philistines, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. And you and I know that those to be great enemies of the Jewish people down the road. And then in, chat, in verses 21 through 31, we see uh, Noah's son Shem and his family. We see their migration. Uh, they settled in the Middle East. They settled east of Mesopotamia in the modern nations of Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq, and Israel. Uh, Shem's family are the Semites from which the Jewish people would come. And so you see this migration of the people of the world and where they settled and so forth and so on. Now, in chapter 10, verses 8 through 12, we read about a man named Nimrod. Nimrod rose to power in the family of Ham and, and the, the, these folks who had migrated uh, to Africa, Arabia, and Mesopotamia. He became a powerful leader there, and he would lead his people to build this great city called Babylon. Now, why did they want to build this great city? Uh, it appears from the language of Scripture uh, that Nimrod's primary motivation was to build a centralized society that would become a self-sufficient civilization in hopes of controlling all of the world and to be a civilization without the presence of God. Henry Morris, in his commentary on Genesis, says this regarding these efforts led uh, by Nimrod, and I quote, A self-sufficient society integrated under a powerful and brilliant leader would be a society no longer dependent on God, and this was Nimrod's aim, end quote. And we see that exact motivation in this scripture. Look with me in chapter 11. Look with me in verse 4. And I want you to look, first of all, in the latter half of verse 4. Notice what we read here. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. The, the, the people of Babylon, Nimrod and his followers, were not concerned with God's plans. They weren't concerned with God's purpose for their life. Their goal was to make themselves famous. Their goal was to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be the envy of all the world. More than that, they also desired to be independent of God. Notice what it says there. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. What did God instruct Adam and Eve, and then later, what did he instruct Noah? He said, be fruitful, multiply, and what? Fill the earth. Be scattered around the world. Well, Nimrod and those who would follow him didn't want to do that. They didn't want to be scattered. They want to be centralized. They wanted to develop this great urban centralized place where they could rule and dominate the world. Uh, this was a tower. The Tower of Babel was a tower constructed by man uh, for man's glory. The Tower of Babel was a celebration of man's abilities and man's achievements and man's accomplishments. It was entirely void of the purpose of God. So that's the first thing we see. But look in the first half uh, uh, also uh, of, uh, or in verse 4. Notice what it says here. Build a tower, what does it say, with its top in the sky. Or some of our translations say, whose top is in the heavens, 
with its top in the heavens, a tower whose top will reach in the heaven in other translations. Now, that verse is not teaching us that the builders were trying to build this massive, tall structure. The height of the building is not the context that you and I need to focus on. Uh, the language is, is pointing to a place, ultimately, of worship. Nimrod knew that the people needed a reason to come to his city and, and, and to gather, and he knew that he could, he could bring them here under this guise of worship. And so he wants to build this large, this ornate, this fabulous tower or temple where people could come and to worship. The problem is their goal wasn't to worship the Lord. Now, now what evidence do we have to support that idea? that this tower was a place of worship. Here's something very interesting, and we're not going to dive into this this morning, but the Bible traces, this is phenomenal, the Bible traces all false religions to Babylon. Every false religion of the world had its origin in Babylon. And this is the only description of early Babylon uh, that can have any religious meaning or connotation, this, this tower here, this, this place of worship. It's interesting, historically, the identity of all the various gods of Rome, uh, of Greece, of India, of Egypt, and of the other nations of the world can all be traced back to Babylon. Every one of them have their roots in chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 of Genesis. The false gods of our idolatry have their roots in a city called Babylon, built by Nimrod and his followers. They desired to be independent of God. The one true God, Yahweh. And what would be the result? It would be a world filled with the worship of old, untold numbers of false gods. And it started right here. This is the origin of all of it. Now, I want you to just, let me just read for you, just let me, in, in reminder of this truth, from, from Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, listen carefully to what happens when man, either individually or corporately, begins to move away from the Lord, desiring to be independent of God and worship the gods of our own making. L listen carefully to what we read here. And we see this truth all the way back in Genesis. We see it throughout all of Scripture. We see it throughout all of human history. Listen carefully. Beginning Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's exactly what we see in Genesis 11. The people of Babylon suppressing the truth of God since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, 
They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Verse 24. Therefore, because of these things, because they have willfully and deliberately walked away from the Lord, turned their back on Him, and are chasing after idols, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. That is, that, that is a description of exactly what we see in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. Here's what's also interesting. Babylon is used symbolically in Scripture to describe a world in rebellion against God. You see, not only was Babylon a very real place, who, who, where we, and we see its origin here in Genesis 10 and 11, but it's also a term used symbol, symbolically to, uh, to uh, identify a world system, a world view that is not concerned with God, or with the things of God. A, a worldview, a world system in absolute, total rebellion against the one true God. For example, in Revelation 14 and verse 8, we see Babylon's power to make people resist the gospel. Listen to what we read in Revelation 14. And another, a second angel, followed, saying, It has fallen. Babylon the great has fallen. She made all the nations drink the wine of her sexual immorality, which brings wrath. And in Revelation 17 and verse 5, we see Babylon pictured as this notorious prostitute that seduces people away from God. And here's what the verse says. Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth or of the abomination of the earth. And so the gross unbelief and the idolatry we read in Revelation about Babylon and this worldview and this world system that is opposed to all things good and godly had its origin right here in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. And so what happens? In response to man's efforts to make a name for themselves, in response to man's efforts, to be independent of God and go their own way and do their own thing, what does God do? God comes down and confuses their language so they can no longer work effectively and accomplish what they were hoping to accomplish, and he scatters them throughout the earth. And you see the same thing happening throughout all of Scripture. When man decides to do our own thing, to build our own kingdom, to, to ignore the Lord in the ways of the Lord, and God keeps doing this in the life of humanity, hoping, desiring that you and I would pursue him and him alone. So that's Genesis 11, 1 through 9. But what do we learn from this text in the year 2022? What, 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 what do we take away from this, all right? You ready? There's, there's three things in your notes. Your notes are really simple this morning, so let's take a look at that. Here's the first thing we need to, to learn. God wants our obedience. God wants our obedience. God had, instruct, had instructed his people, or again, first with Adam and Eve and then with Noah, 
to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, okay? That's what he said to him. Go out into all the world. Fill the world. Don't gather in a central place. Don't try to build this great big kingdom of man. Go into all the world. Unfortunately, we see in Genesis 11 that, that Nimrod and his followers and the descendants there of Ham decided not to obey the Lord's instruction, but to stay there in one place and try to build this great big kingdom where they would become famous and known the world over. Look with me on the screen at 1 Samuel chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. Samuel is responding to King Saul. God had given King Saul very specific instructions as to how he was to handle the Amalekite people. He was to go in there and he was to invade that territory and he was to take over those people. And God gave him very specific instructions on what to do. And King Saul didn't listen. He didn't obey the Lord. And here's what the prophet Samuel says to him. Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? In other words, does the Lord take pleasure in your acts of religious service as much as in obeying the Lord? Then he says, look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. And listen, look, look at this next statement. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness in idolatry. Think about that, church. When we disobey the Lord, the Bible says that is wickedness and that is idolatry. Samuel goes on to say, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, because you have willfully and deliberately disobeyed the Lord, he has rejected you as king. The people of Babylon refused to obey the Lord. They refused to follow the Lord's plan and purpose for their life. Church, God wants our obedience. And all through Scripture, we see this same story being played out. Every time God's people chose to go their own way and do their own thing, we, we see these great consequences. We see God intervening, saying, no, I'm not going to have that. I want you to follow me. I want you to obey me. I want all of your heart, soul, and mind. Here's the second thing we, we need to be reminded from this text. God will not give his glory to another. He will not give his glory to another. Look with me in Isaiah 42 and verse 8. God speaking through the prophet Isaiah says this, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh. That is my name, and I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. What is God's glory? God's glory is his honor, his, his splendor, and his, his dignity. And, and listen, church, it was true in Genesis 11, and it's true in the year 2022. God will not share his glory with anyone or anything else. He will not give his glory to another. Why? Because all glory and all honor and all praise belong to him and him alone. L listen to what the psalmist says. In Psalm 29, verses 1 and 2. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. In Psalm 96, verses 7 through 9, we see similar language. 
Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Let the whole earth, watch this, let the whole earth tremble before him. And then we see it come full circle in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11. The apostle John has this glimpse into, into heaven. And here's what he writes. Our Lord, or what he witnesses, the, this angelic choir, this choir of heaven singing. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Listen, God will not give his glory to another. He's not going to share that which is rightly and solely his. Uh, let me show you an illustration from Scripture where someone tried to take the glory away from God and, and the consequences. In Acts chapter 12, King Herod made the mistake of trying to appropriate God's glory to himself. Listen to what we read. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne... Herod delivered a speech to them. The assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of a God and not of man. At once, at once, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. Church, you and I need to be reminded, even in our own culture, that, 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 that any idol in our life, God will discredit it. God will do what he has to do to receive the honor and the glory that is due him. Church, be reminded this morning that, that, that God is not one of many. He is not superior among inferior gods. He is not the best option of many choices. He is the only true God and there is no other. And he will not share his glory with another or anything. Worship the false gods of Babylon at your own peril. The Lord will not have anything to do with that. The Lord will not share his glory. And then finally, the third thing we see is that God is a jealous God, an all-consuming fire who alone deserves our worship. Look with me at some of these passages of Scripture. This is, this, is, this is difficult language in some respects. In Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 4, God's giving us the Ten Commandments, and he says to us, Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow in worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, watch this, am a jealous God. So he says, don't make an idol for yourself. Don't bow and worship to them. Don't serve them. Exodus 34, verse 14, read that with me. Because the Lord is jealous for his reputation, you are never to bow down to another God. He is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, read that with me. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. What does that mean when Scripture says he is a jealous God? When you and I use the word jealous, we use it in the sense of being envious of someone 
that, that has something we don't have, right? We, we might be jealous or envious of, of a person who, who, who uh, has a nicer home or wears nicer clothes or drives a nicer car or has a nice ski boat or whatever it might be. You and I might be jealous or envious of another person who has, who, who has a, a, a better skill or ability than we do. Maybe it's athletic ability or musical ability or, or anything else. You and I can be envious. We can be jealous of those people. Well, the Bible teaches us that that, that kind of jealousy is, is sinful. It, it's wrong to be jealous or envious of another. That's not how the word is used in reference to the Lord. God is jealous when someone gives to another something that rightly belongs to him. God is never jealous of something he doesn't have or something that doesn't belong to him. Why? Because ultimately everything belongs to the Lord. It's his. So there's nothing out there that he, that he doesn't have that he, that he wants. In these verses, God is speaking of people making idols and bowing down and worshiping those idols instead of giving God the worship that belongs to him and him alone. Listen carefully, church. Worship, praise, honor, and adoration belong to God alone. For only God is worthy of those things. Therefore, he is rightly jealous when, when worship and praise and honor and adoration is given to anyone or anything else. God wants that from us. God wants our worship and praise. God wants our total allegiance. He is zealous for us to love him with all of our heart, our soul, and our being. And listen, God knows that the best path for us, are you ready for this? The best path for us always follows our faithful worship of him. And likewise, he knows that the worst path, worst path for us follows our unfaithful worship of anyone or anything else. Let me remind you that idols can take all sorts of shapes and sizes. In our Western educated culture, we, we think of an idol as something that we construct with our hand and we bow down to it, but, but listen carefully. An idol is anything in our life that has a greater importance to us than the Lord. It can be an interpersonal relationship. It, it, it can be money. It can be vocation. It can be pleasure. It can be popularity. It can be a number of likes on our social media account. It, it can be any number of things that we can worship ahead of the Lord. Anything we put ahead of the Lord is an idol. And God, listen, he is jealous. He wants our full allegiance. He wants our total worship. He wants us to love him with every ounce of our being. And listen to me, church. He will do whatever it takes in your life and my life to bring us to that place of humble, unhindered, total allegiance to him. He'll do whatever it takes to get us to be to get us on our faces before him in absolute and total surrender and worship. And we see that in Genesis chapter 11. 
God will not allow his people to give our allegiance to anyone or anything else. He will go to great lengths as far as confusing the speech of humanity if he has to, to keep us humble and faithful to him. That's what we read in Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for your great love for us. Lord God, I want to thank you for your patience with us. I want to thank you, Lord, that you love us and love us unconditionally and unselfishly and sacrificially. And Lord God, I want to thank you that your jealousy for us and our allegiance drove you to leave heaven and to come to this earth and to veil yourself in our flesh to walk our streets and to wear our clothes and to speak our language and to eat our food and ultimately to die on our cross to pay the penalty of our sin. Lord, I thank you that you are jealous for us with such a great jealousy that you are willing to give up your life to bring us to yourself, that you are willing to give up your life to forgive us of our sin and Rise from the dead to guarantee us eternity in your presence. And Father God, I pray that we would respond in faithful and humble surrender to you. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be like the people of Genesis 11, that we wouldn't try to build our own kingdom and do our own thing, that we wouldn't just set you aside. But Lord God, we would understand that we need you that without you we have no hope, without you there is no joy, and without you there is no peace, and without you there is no purpose, and without you there is no eternal life. Lord God, grab hold of every heart and mind in this place, starting with mine, Lord, and just draw us closer to you. Draw us to that place, Lord, where we are fully surrendered and humble and faithful worship to you, our Creator and our Redeemer. Lord God, raise up a people who would be fully surrendered to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.